I invite you to take your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 16 as we continue in our look at the life of Abram, Abraham. We're, we've seen him and he is described in the, in the Scriptures as the father of our faith, our ancestor in the faith. As those who are trusting in Christ Jesus, Abram, as it was, blazed the trail. And he had times of great faith and he had times where he fell on his face. Today is one of those days. We often view faith as moving someone to a big, bold act of faith. Something like in the beginning when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, the cosmopolitan wealthy city of Ur, and he he left there to go to a place that the Lord simply said, I will show you. He left for the unknown, the big, bold step of faith. Or we think of the time in Abram's life where he went off chasing those four eastern kings, their powerful armies that had come and taken his nephew and family captive and and others from Sodom and the cities in the plain and Abram with his small little band of men goes chasing these powerful armies and rescues Lot and the other folks and a big bold act of faith. Or maybe like when he got back, Bera, the king of Sodom, came and offered uh, Abram the all of the wealth of Sodom and Abram in a big bold act of faith said, no, I have promised the Lord I will not take even a shoelace from the thong of your sandal, I, uh, nothing, so that you can never say I made Abram rich. Sometimes faith indeed leads us to great acts, great steps of faith. But I believe the more I've thought about it, the more often than not, the great test of faith is usually not something that requires great courage or bold action. Rather, the great test of faith is often fought in the battlefield of waiting. Will I patiently trust God when it appears that God is doing nothing? Will I remain faithful when the end to my situation, my problem, my concerns is not in sight? Will I stay faithful? See, waiting is hard. Perhaps you remember the story of King Saul, the first king of Israel, when shortly into his reign, I think it was about two years into his reign, the Philistines gather to fight the Israelites. Saul is there with his his army and they discover very quickly they are outmanned and outgunned. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers without number all come in, in the Philistine ranks and start arraying themselves to fight against the Israelites. Saul is there with the Israelite army and the guys start to panic. They his army starts hiding out in any way they can, try to make themselves invisible, hiding behind rocks and in holes and in caves. And they're just quaking in their sandals. The prophet Samuel had told Saul, he said, now, when you get there to Gilgal, he said, wait for me. 
Seven days you'll wait and then I'll come and I'm going to offer sacrifices and have some instructions from the Lord. Do you remember that as the days went by, every day the guys got more frightened and some of the soldiers deserted. Even some of them went over and joined the Philistine army. Reminds me of when I was a kid. I was, I was quite a bit younger than both of my brothers and they would fight each other quite often. My job, I think, was simply to look for whoever was going to win and join their side. So some of these Israeli soldiers were doing, and, and by the time the seventh day came, the seventh day dawned, and, and King Saul is watching his, his army in disarray, and he's, he's looking for Samuel, and Samuel hasn't shown, and the day goes on, and he's watching, and his men start to scatter and he, he thinks to himself, if I don't do anything, it's all going to be over. I won't even have an army left. And so in desperation, he calls and he says, bring me the sacrifices. And he, he offers the sacrifices just as he's finished. The prophet Samuel rounds the bend. He says, Saul, what have you done? And he brings a stinging rebuke and judgment from God because of Saul's impatience and his disobedience. It's hard to wait. One preacher I, I read called patience the overalls of faith. See, it's, it's patience is where faith goes to work in the nitty gritties, in the dailies of life. Sometimes I think, and next week we'll be focused a little bit in our that day, our International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. We need to draw our attention to the fact that millions of our brothers and sisters on a daily basis first face persecution. But there are times as I've thought about it that I think it at times is easier to die for Christ than to live for Him. And that is no way is minimizing the suffering of our brothers and sisters. And in no way minimizing the courage that it takes to stand for Christ and give your life for Him. But to do so often re requires but a few moments of bold courage. I stand for Jesus. Much like some in recent days who were forced to stand and say, do you believe in Jesus and face a gun? And if you said, you know, I'm trusting Christ, are you, are you a Christian? Whatever, that you die. But it only takes a few moments of courage. But on the other hand, living for Christ in the long haul, in the long run, in the dailies and the difficult dailies of life requires time after time after time and incident after incident after incident of faithful Determination and belief and trust to say, yes, I'm going to stick with patiently waiting and trusting God. Sometimes that's harder. And Abram, who we've seen, has these bold stands of faith when it comes to waiting patiently. This is where he trips up. It was his first trip up a few chapters back when the famine came. And instead of waiting in the land, he got anxious and he went to Egypt. Here in chapter 16, there's a struggle of waiting. 
Abram and Sarai have a have a desire. It's a natural desire. They have a desire for children. It's natural. It's built into most of us as husbands and wives. It is a good desire. God said at the beginning when He created Adam and Eve, He He gave the command, the first command to His His new race. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Have babies. It's a desire that especially for Sarah and Abraham back in this day was fueled by the the society, by social pressure. So much more so than in our day, childlessness was viewed as a curse. It was viewed as a failure. Not only that, it was a desire that they had because it was something that God had promised. When God called Abram to the land, He had made a promise. There would be descendants to inherit the land. In the preceding chapter, which we were at a few weeks ago before we took a break for our mission's emphasis, we were in chapter 15. God had reaffirmed His promises to Abram. He had even reaffirmed them in a covenant, a a binding contract. And in that contract, God said Abram would have a son and innumerable descendants. We've seen that God had said these descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. And we come to chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. We'll stop there for the moment. As we look at this story, I want us to note five things that will help us avoid the error of impatience. The minefield of impatience. I notice verse 3 and it, it is there. It says, after living in Canaan ten years. It's there to emphasize that though the promise had been re- recently reaffirmed, it's been ten long years since it was first promised. This particular event, chapter 16, follows on the heels of chapter 15, I don't know exactly how long the time is. It may have just been days. It might have been weeks. It was no, really no more than about a year at the most since the covenant was, reaff- was made and the promises reaffirmed. But it's been ten years since they first started down this road. Ten years of waiting and ten years of expecting and ten years of disappointment. No children. And so I'm sure Sarai is thinking, well, desperate times call for desperate measures. She's thinking of that little biblical proverb, God helps them who helps themselves. Oh, wait, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) The Bible wasn't even written then, but it's not going to show up there even now. It's still not there. Go look. 
So maybe we have to do something. But as we read this, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to guess this isn't going to go well. How do we avoid going down the path of Abram and Sarah? I doubt any of you are going to give your husband to your maidservant. But all of us face the time when we are tempted to yield to impatience and to step out brashly and rashly and to fall into sin because we quit following God, start following our own plans. How do we avoid that? Five suggestions from the text this morning, or tips from the text, I should say. First is this. Don't run ahead of God. If you notice, Sarai rightly diagnoses why she does not have children. She says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is God in control? Some of you think so. Is God sovereign? That's me. Yeah, it means the same thing as He's in control. Okay. Yes, He is. Well, if God is sovereign, if God is in control, and she doesn't have a baby, guess who's made that decision? God. Okay. She's right in that. But she draws a wrong conclusion. Somehow she and Abram joins with her in presuming that because God hasn't acted yet, God must not be intending to act. Either God is choosing not to act or God is unable to act or God just doesn't care, but God isn't acting. And so He must have a different plan and He must need our help. She misunderstands. A couple of things we need to understand if we're not going to run ahead of God. And one is we need to understand that God's timetable is not usually synced up with our timetable. Have you noticed that? We have one one timeline for how we think things ought to go and God has a different one. (laughs) God's timetable usually moves slower than ours. We want it now, but God... Says, you know, wait a little bit. Part of the reason is because God's objectives are different than our objectives. See, our objectives are we want to get moving and God wants us to grow. <laughs> we want the problem fixed and God wants you fixed. <laughs> us fixed. We want to change someone and God wants to change us. We want some earthly treasure and God wants us to build up heavenly treasure. And we could go on and on with the contrast between what our desires are and our thoughts are and what God desires for us. And they tend to be different. And so God takes His time because in His time He begins to, you see, develop and grow the things He desires in us rather than what we're trying to do. Problem is, most of us get focused on getting out of a difficult situation, out of the pressure situation, rather than growing through the pressure situation. It's not that there aren't times that we can do something to relieve difficult times, but we need to understand that difficult times aren't always bad. 
The Apostle Paul says that in in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. He says here, So we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Some of your translations will say endurance. Others will use another word, patience, the very word we're talking about. They're all synonyms for the same thing. Patience is being able to persevere when things get difficult. Patience is being able to endure when things get difficult. It's that ability to to wait when it goes long, when it goes hard, to hang in there. James says pretty much the same thing. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you, you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's that word patience again. See, patience is a quality that all of us need, but most of us really, we don't like the way that it gets there. You see, patience tends to flourish and grow in the soil of difficulty and suffering. Patience grows when life is the pressure cooker and we, instead of growing patience, we want to get out of the pressure cooker. That's what happens with Abram and Sarai. God has put them in the pressure cooker of time. And they get impatient. And they try to run ahead of God. So that's my first tip. Don't run ahead of God. Maybe you don't want to pray for patience because you're worried that it might bring additional troubles into your life. (laughs) One of my favorite book titles is called uh, I Prayed for Patience and Other Horror Stories. (laughs) So maybe you don't want to pray for patience, but may I suggest this. Let us at least pray that we won't miss the lessons that God has desired for us to learn in the midst of the situations and the struggles that we're already in. Lord, don't let me miss the lessons because I don't want to have to repeat. (laughs) Don't have to repeat the course. Second thing, first, don't run ahead of God. Realize He has a different timetable and different objectives than we do. Secondly, don't leave God out of the process. Again, I note that Sarai has rightly diagnosed the the reason for the situation, God has kept me from having children. But if you read the chapter very carefully, you'll notice something that is glaringly missing in this chapter. Sarai recognizes God is the instigator, and yet neither she nor Abram ever consult God. God is causing this, but they don't go and say, God, what are you doing? God is causing this, but they don't say, God, what do you want us to do? If we're honest, though, this tends to be a problem for all of us, isn't it? We'll come to church and we'll say, when the pastor asks, yes, God is sovereign, God's in charge. And tomorrow when you're at work or at home or, you know, whatever, you're facing the situation, man, God is so far from your thoughts. You don't pray or consult, what would God have me do in this? We just start working the situation. Hmm. You know, I can't help but think of Matthew 6.33. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Why are you worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear? You know, 
why are you worried about the, the, these problems? Put God first. Seek His kingdom. Seek His glory. And the other stuff will fall in place. But we know all the right theology and then we put God on the shelf and leave Him out. That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did and it got him into trouble. Don't run ahead of God and don't leave God out of the process as you try to wrestle with the, the struggles and the pressure and the difficulty. Thirdly, don't get your solutions from the world or from the culture around us. They had the right desire. They wanted children, but they started looking for the solution to that in the culture around them. Well, how does everybody else deal with this? Getting the right thing the wrong way is disastrous. So often we think, well, I have the right desire, so it doesn't matter how I get it. That's the philosophy of the world. It's pragmatism. It's the ends justify the means. We've heard that and we often practice that, but that's not what God says. When you read through the Scriptures, what you realize is that with God, the process is at least as important, if not more important, than the product. God is more concerned about how we get somewhere than even if we get there. (laughs) That works in your family. It works in your job. It even works in church work. It works in the ministry of God to have the right motive that we want to... You know, there are folks who are, hey, we want to reach people for Christ. And they do all kinds of stuff. Leaving God out of the picture. Using methods and strategies that aren't really the right way. They're not the God's way. So Sarah comes up with a plan and it's one that's culturally normal and it's culturally acceptable. It was very normal in that society. If, you have, if you're childless and you, you don't have an heir... Then, and you have a maidservant, and the wife can, can give the maidservant to the husband as a wife and have a child. And when that child is born, it becomes the child of the wife. And that's normal and it's acceptable in the culture. And so, Abram, let's do this. And I say, if you and I are thinking, if we're acting, if we're reacting, if we're solving problems, if we're prioritizing, if we're making our decisions, and we're living like the culture around us in all of those things, then we are most, almost certainly not following God any longer. Because you see, God's path generally tends to go in a different, if not a completely opposite direction than the culture. When I say that, I'm not saying that everything in culture is evil and that culture never has anything right. What I'm saying, though, is when we're trying to make decisions and we're trying to deal with issues, we're trying to figure out what do we do and where do we go, don't turn on the TV and watch The View. Don't go to the internet. Don't go to the magazines. Don't go to your co-workers. Don't go to your classmates and look for advice on what do I do. We start here with the Word of God. We start here and then we listen to what our co-workers and our classmates and our friends and our neighbors and and what others say, and we evaluate what they say according to the Word of God. And if it's if they match, okay, but if not, we discard that advice. Thank you very much. We go with what God says. So you might say, well, Abram didn't have the Scripture. You said that earlier, Pastor. The, the Scripture wasn't written yet, so how could Abram consult the Word of God? Well, good question. 
First of all, I think that Abram, I think Abram likely knew the creation story. God made Adam and Eve, didn't make Adam and Eve and Erica. God said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular, not wives, plural, and the two will become one flesh. That kind of makes it, it's kind of an exclusive thing. It's hard for him to be one flesh with Eve and one flesh with Erica, and it doesn't work very well, and I think he probably knew that. I can't prove that he did. But clearly God had made promises to Abram. Clearly he said, you will have descendants, children. While God didn't specify that Sarah would be the mother, God also didn't give any information or any instructions that would lead anybody to think anything to the contrary. And no matter what, they certainly, neither one certainly went to God and say, hey God, uh, what do we do? While the plan was culturally acceptable, I have a feeling that even though Sarai was the one who pushed this, who conceived the plan and pushed the plan, promoted the plan, somehow I doubt that in her heart she was excited about the plan. I haven't met any wives so far who've said, yeah, this sounds like a really great idea. Matter of fact, perhaps she was going to Abram and host hoping for a no answer. Hey, Abram, don't you think we should do this? No, I really don't think so. Oh, God, I just wanted to hear that. <laughs> Maybe Abram actually said that several times and she came back time after time. We don't really know the situation. A little freebie here I'll throw in. I have to do it because I did it in the first service. Ladies, just in case, this isn't Scripture, okay, it's my opinion, but just from years of counseling, folks. Ladies, don't say what you don't mean to your husband. In other words, if you mean yes, don't say no. If you mean no, don't say yes. Because we're not that smart. Okay? Guys don't do subtlety very well. You know, if you're saying no and hoping we get that you really mean yes, we didn't get that. So just be blunt. No. We get that. Okay? Just freebie. Not Scripture. Okay, back to the Scripture. I don't think that Abram really, in other words, regarded his wife in this. Certainly, neither Sarai nor Abram regarded Hagar. Hagar was treated like furniture here. She's treated like a baby machine. I somehow doubt that she was eager to become a second-class wife. Certainly to an older man for the purpose of having a baby that would not be hers. See, this whole plan, when you look at it, you just go, that doesn't make sense. Have you ever watched a movie where you want to cry out to the screen, no, 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 don't, 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 don't go there, don't open that door? <laughs> you know, no, 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 don't, don't start the car, no. This is that. <laughs> we see it coming. Things that seem like a good idea at the time, but you realize, you know, it just goes badly. You know, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. You see, those things, they might seem like a good idea at the time, but they end up in disaster. Surprisingly, you see, I would think God would be on the sidelines going, Abram, don't do it! 
Abram is God's chosen fella here, and, and God doesn't stop in, step in and say, Abram, no, don't go there. God lets Abram go through with this really bad plan. You know, sometimes I think some of us think, you know, if God doesn't want me to do that, He's just going to stop me. That's a dangerous thought. I'm not saying it's a bad thing when you, you know, you've, you're wrestling with something, you, you've consulted Scripture, and well, I can't see a reason why. It's not a good idea. It seems like a good idea, but, you know, Lord, if it's not good, stop me. Okay, stop me. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to pray, but I'm just saying, folks, if we expect God to stop us and keep us out of trouble just because, I have a feeling God's going to let us go into it. He let Abraham go step into this. We need to remember because of that, there's a high cost for bad decisions. Cost is huge. Easy solutions have difficult consequences. Eventually, whatever we do on our own comes to a bad end. I remember Jesus says, John chapter 15, He says, apart from Me you can do nothing. The reality is we can't do anything of lasting value, anything of ultimate good apart from Jesus Christ. When we step out away from Him, we're in trouble. I like the words of a, of a Scottish author who wrote this, a novelist, George MacDonald. He said this, And whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. You're going to be miserable either way. Abram is about to miserably succeed. The plan was to get a baby, and they got a baby, but it didn't go like they thought. Very quickly this plan unravels. The chickens come home to roost and jealousy and competition and bitterness and anger. They all erupt in Abram's house. Hagar despises Sarai. Sarai gets furious with Abram. Have I read the verses? Let's read them. Oh, I gave you the preview. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram says. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord... I'm going to stop there. Sarai gets furious with Abram. She blames him. This is your fault. And may God judge you, she says. And we may seem unfair that she's accusing Abram and saying it's blaming him, but the reality is, guys, if the Scripture is true, and it is, that we as men are supposed to be the heads, the spiritual leaders in our home. Abram failed. He failed for all the reasons we've talked about before, to protect his his wife, to protect himself, to protect his family, his household from this disaster by saying no to this sin. He failed to lead. And now that everything is falling apart, Abram fails to lead again because when Sarah comes looking for some kind of, of way out of this, he just says, hey babe, it's your problem, you deal with it. So she mistreats Hagar and Hagar runs away. Four good reasons, four good things to remember that will help us avoid the error of impatience. But there's one more lesson. It's in this last thing. It's a, it's a lengthy section. I want to just try to tell the story quickly. I won't read it. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to 
Let me just tell you briefly, though, a couple of things. Hagar goes on the run. She's running back towards home. That's Egypt. She comes to a spring, and there as she's waiting, the angel of the Lord comes and appears to her. The angel of the Lord says, Hey, where are you going? You know, where you? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. He tells her, Go back home. Look. Verse 9, go back to your mistress, submit to her. That's a pretty bold and big command. Then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so they'll be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now a child, you'll have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. God sends the angel of the Lord, who I believe, and as many theologians do, that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ shows up and says, Hagar, go back. By the way, I'm going to make your descendants too numerous to count. Secondly, you've got a son. Call him Ishmael. Thirdly, he goes on, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. We go, whoa. That doesn't sound like a compliment. You know what? I think he tells her exactly what she needs to hear. He goes on and says, His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against Him. He will live in hostility towards all His brothers. You know what I think He's saying? She's a slave. Her son is going to be independent. He's going to be free. She is powerless, but He's going to be powerful. She might be abused by Sarai, her mistress, but He is going to stand against Abram's other son. And it's not only between son to son, it goes on to their progeny and it is as current as the news that you'll read today as Hagar is the mother of the Arabs and Sarai the mother of the Jews. Hagar calls God El Roy, the God who sees. She names her son according to the name that God gives. Ishmael, God hears. There's a message here, you see. It's God sees and God hears. God has compassion on this lowly servant girl who is the victim in this whole scheme that Abram and Sarah concoct. She's the victim. And God says, go back. I see and I hear. God cares for the abused, the oppressed, hurting, the weak, powerless. God's a God of compassion. He has compassion on them. And yet He sends her back. And I wonder, why does God send her back into that situation? May I just suggest a few reasons as we wrap up? By the way, here's the last point. We need to remember that God sees and hears. God sends her back, I think, for one thing, because Ishmael needs a dad. It is such a tragedy that so many kids grow up without a dad. I think God doesn't want this boy to grow up without a father. Sends her back. I think He sends her back not only for Ishmael's sake, but for Hagar's sake, because Hagar doesn't need to be raising a child by herself. She needs provision and help. But mostly, I think God sends Hagar back 
for Abram and Sarai. Because you see, God has them waiting all this time because what was God trying to do in the beginning? He's trying to teach them some point. Remember, God has a purpose in the in all this delay. They still have to learn some lessons. One of the lessons they need to learn is that there's a high cost, number four, for bad decisions. And Abram gets to diaper and to feed and to clothe and to raise his bad decision. Another part of that, they're rebuked when, when this servant girl comes back. See, Abram and Sarai never sought the voice of God, never sought the wisdom and the input of God dealing with this problem, this pressure in their life. And so God never spoke to them. He just lets them go. But He goes to the victim, to the servant girl, and sees her. And now when she goes back, she has a story to tell. The God who sees and the God who hears appeared to me and told me to come back. What a rebuke to the man of God. I wasn't asking for God to to speak. So he spoke to her. Wasn't looking for it. And every time he calls his son's name, Ishmael, he says, God hears. Let's point to that. God never was unconcerned about Abram and Sarah's problems. Nor was he unconcerned about Hagar, by the way. God was never uninformed about Abram and Sarah's childlessness. God wasn't ignorant. God wasn't wasn't incompetent. And He wasn't uncaring. It's just God had a different plan. And Abram was reminded every time he calls his son that he never sought God to deal with the problem. God hears. God hears. God hears. It's going to be 13 years before Abram hears the voice of God again. 13 years, though, of reminding himself and teaching himself and his wife and his family that God hears so we can talk to Him and we can rest in Him. It was true for Hagar, true for Abram and Sarah, and it's true for you. It's true for me. God is not ignorant of whatever you're going through. He's not... He is not incompetent, unable to help, and He is not unwilling to help. But God is working a plan. He has a purpose and He hears. So talk to Him and rest in Him. Father, we needed to hear this because this room is filled with a bunch of impatient people. Filled with a bunch of us who tend to puts you on a shelf and we tend to go run off and do our own stuff. We tend to work out our own plan, our own ideas. When they fall apart, sometimes we blame you. (laughs) Forgive us, Lord, for not listening to you, for not digging into your word, for not coming to you in prayer, for not looking for your glory ahead of our own thoughts and ideas. We leave you out of the process. Forgive us for that, Lord. 
May it change. And may our hearts change. May we be people who are patient. People who patiently endure, who wait in faith and trust. So when the storms come, when the trials come, when the long, long days of drought and difficulty hit, we will be still and we will rest and trust in You. Because You are the God who sees and the God who hears. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.